0: Dr. Marty Fried,
1: Dr. Shreya Trivedi,
0: and Dr. Evan Harmon, this is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast,
1: bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls.
0: Today, we're discussing stress testing and coronary CTA, part one.
1: Mm -hmm. And we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Greg Katz, cardiologist at NYU, who our listeners might remember from the troponin episode.
2: It looks like you're looking at a donut across the room and trying to gauge the symmetric distribution of sprinkles.
0: So that's Greg talking about interpreting stress nuclear imaging. And a big shout out to our guest today and new friend of the pod. We are super stoked to be joined today by Dr. Evan Harmon, a resident and budding cardiologist from UVA. Wahoo wah, Evan, <laughs> you did a ton of research uh, to prep for this episode, man. Really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks a ton for having me on, guys. I'm happy to be here. And as Marty said, go who's. Uh, honestly, I'm pretty shocked how much work goes into just one of these episodes, but it was definitely worth it. Right
1: nice, on. nice. And we also wanted to thank our friend, Dr. Danny Sartori, for his help for this episode off air. And with that, we are looking for more off air producers on the five pearl episodes. So if you love med ed, like researching compelling points, send us an email.
0: All right. So let's get started with some of the questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions.
1: Remember the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
0: Pearl 1, to stress or not to stress.
1: What are the indications for a stress test and how can stress tests help us for things other than coronary artery disease?
0: Pearl 2, stressing.
1: When ordering a stress test, how do we choose which stress protocol to use?
0: Pearl 3, stress diagnostics.
1: When ordering a stress test, how do we choose which diagnostic modality or imaging to use?
0: Pearl four, communicating results.
1: How do we interpret the results of a stress test and how do we communicate this to our patients?
0: And pearl five, a throwback pearl, contrast-induced nephropathy.
1: Is there a big difference in the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy between arterial and venous contrast loads? All right. I think I'm just going to use myself as a case for this episode, guys. I vividly remember Younger Shreya, and maybe intern. this was intern year or maybe it was a few months ago. I'll leave it to you guys' imagination. <laughs> but Younger Shreya was struggling in clinic when ordering a stress test for a patient. You know, so many options to choose from, things to click. And I remember preemptively just being embarrassed at what the cardiologist on the other end would think of me with a concoction of things that I had just like click through just to get the order through.
0: I'm totally with you, Shreya. I mean, there's exercise stress, farm stress, EKG stress, stress echo, nuclear stress. I mean, at one point, you might have convinced me that stress colonoscopies were a thing, and I'm pretty (laughs) sure I would have believed you. So, what about stress PFTs? That probably sounds more real. Anyway, how do you
2: choose the right one? Actually, the big picture question of when to get any type of stress test is just as important, if not more important, than deciding how you want to stress a patient.
4: Okay, okay.
1: I guess I got excited to just dive right in. But, you know, we should take a 30,000-foot view to think about when stress testing is actually indicated. And there's two big buckets, you know, the coronary artery disease reasons, and then the bucket that I was less familiar with, the non-coronary artery disease reasons,
3: Yeah, Shreya, so those non-coronary disease reasons to get a stress test would be something like exercise-induced arrhythmias or, in the case of Wolf-Parkinson-White, to assess the risk of a patient's accessory pathway. A fun fact for you guys to know on rounds for Wolf-Parkinson-White is that a rapidly disappearing delta wave suggests a lower-risk variant. One last non-coronary reason for stress testing that Greg will expound on is distinguishing aortic stenosis from pseudo-aortic stenosis.
2: So if someone has a low ejection fraction, you're going to have falsely lowered flow through the left ventricular outflow tract. And that can make it look like non-severe aortic stenosis is severe when you use the continuity equation to calculate the aortic ground area. And so if you're trying to distinguish between pseudo-severe AS and severe AS, the butamine stress echo can be really helpful by augmenting someone's contractility, improving flow through their left ventricular afloat tract, and you might actually be able to show that a previously calculated aortic valve area of 0.8 is actually 1.2 centimeters, and so it's not severe.
0: How freaking cool is that? I am so forcing a discussion about aortic stenosis next time i rounds, around, just so I can drop that pseudo-severe aortic stenosis bomb on the residents. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Easy, easy
1: there, Marty. All right, before you get carried away, um, we're going to focus the majority of the podcast on the coronary reasons for stress testing.
3: Oh, I am so fired up for some more stress bombs. Oh, they're coming, Marty. Just you wait. In the meantime, Greg provides a pretty nice description of that relatively common situation in clinic, when a patient's chest pain partly sounds like angina and partly sounds like something else altogether.
2: Anytime you're seeing a patient who has symptoms or risk factors, one of the things that's going through your head is, how likely do I think it is that this patient has coronary artery disease? And also, how severe or concerning is this coronary artery disease? Very often, you're left with a story from the patient that just unsatisfying. And there are some features that make you think it's very concerning and some features that are a lot more reassuring. And so stress testing is very helpful when you're trying to figure out if the symptoms or the lack of perfection that you're able to clarify about somebody's history is due to obstructive coronary disease.
3: So stress testing is probably most beneficial in patients with stable angina or in cases, as Greg puts it, unsatisfying stories. Those ones where you're not sure if their symptoms could be an ANGEL equivalent or not. And what we're really talking about with those patients
0: are those who fall in the intermediate risk population. Remember, when we're talking about risk, we're talking about factoring in the patient's age, sex, chest pain characteristics to help you kind of estimate that pretest probability of coronary disease. We could spend the entire podcast discussing Bayesian probability and clinical epi, but the important takeaway here is that stress testing probably doesn't help you much in that very, very low-risk population or in that really high-risk population who are probably going to go straight to cath.
1: Right, right. There's a hashtag, things we do for no reason, stress testing in low-risk chest pain. Shout out to Tony Brew on Twitter. We'll get more into why when thinking about the false positives later. But the final point to build this framework out for stress tests is that stress tests not only serve a diagnostic purpose to see are these symptoms you know possibly due to coronary artery disease but they also serve a prognostic purpose as well the other
2: big group that might get a stress test is somebody who you know has coronary disease and you want to figure out how high risk they are do you need to get anatomical imaging do you need to send them for cath before they go for a surgery are they somebody that you should think more closely about revascularizing because there are a number of other risk factors in their presentation stress testing, if you look at population-based data, you see that people who have more ischemia on stress tests have a much higher incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events moving forward. And so even semi-quantifying the degree of ischemia that somebody has on a stress test could be incredibly helpful as you're talking to that patient in clinic and trying to figure out how intensely do you need to convince them to take their statin? Or how kind of uh, aggressive do you need to be with their lifestyle and dietary modifications?
0: All right, more to come on that later. But to recap this pearl, which is really a framework, there are non-coronary reasons for stress testing and coronary reasons for stress testing. A few examples from the former group are arrhythmia and valvular evaluations. And then thinking about that coronary group, the coronary diseases, there are also two purposes, diagnosis and prognosis. We want to stress those intermediate probability folks with the iffy stories to see if ischemia is causing their symptoms. And we also might want to stress people with known coronary disease in whom we might be interested in better defining the clinical significance of their disease like ischemia.
1: Okay. Okay. Back to wide-eyed, younger in Clinic, pulling my hair out, my white hair. You know, trying to sort (laughs) out the stress test to order, and Mr. Corey Nary. Did you? Oh God! Just (laughs) in pause. Shrey
0: just just throws that in there in the last minute.
5: (laughs) I
1: I. So, Mr. Corey Nary. Uh, is a sixty-year-old man who, you know, has a whiff of glucose intolerance, LDLs in the mid 150s, family history of heart disease, who's presented with, you know, new quote unquote indigestion when walking upstairs. And I remember thinking, hmm, a reflex walking up the stairs is a little odd, and with all his risk factors, you know, I feel pretty confident that he might need a stress test. So Let's Monday morning quarterback this and and go through what I probably should have chosen as the next test.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of still pushing for the stress PFDs here. But seriously, I think that the best way to select a stress test for Mr. Neri is to
2: separate the two components of this test. Always just sort of like making sure we're sharing the same mental model. Anytime you are sending somebody for a stress test, you're making two decisions. How do I stress them? And how do I image them? All right. Love me a good
0: framework. So first, you got to pick the method of stressing the patients, right? So typically here is exercise, vasodilator, or inotropes. And then second, we choose the diagnostic method, typically EKG or one of many imaging modalities that we'll talk about in the next Pearl.
1: Yep. All right. So let's focus on the stressor. So if my options are exercise, vasodilators, or inotropes, how do I choose?
2: So everyone who can exercise should exercise. And when you're deciding about the type of stress tests that you want to do, you want to stress somebody and you want to replicate the experiences that they do in their life as best you can. And so if you have somebody who's really active, you want to encourage them to push themselves a lot on the stress test so that you can replicate and bring out whatever symptoms they might be having in their regular life. If you have a patient who's very sedentary, you still want to exercise them because you get a lot of prognostic information based on how far somebody's able to go on a on a stress test. And so everyone who can exercise should exercise.
1: So Mr. Neri says his exercise tolerance is limited by bad knee pain. So I don't think he'll be able to get his heart rate up to 80 to 85% of his maximum heart rate that we want. So I guess I'm choosing between the pharmacological stressors, the vasodilators and the inotropes. Greg makes me feel a little better that there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer here.
2: The majority of how people are deciding this is based on their arbitrary end of one experience across the the population. And I mean, there are data to look at it, but the data don't really show that there is one that is unequivocally superior to another
0: Exactly. But we can highlight some nuances. So starting with the inotropes, we often see this in the US, dobutamine. It's a direct beta-1 and beta-2 agonist. So it's going to increase that cardiac squeeze to stress it. So you tell the patient, heads up, they're going to inject a medication. It's going to make your heart beat faster. And then we're going to take pictures of how your heart responds.
1: Nice. And it it being a beta-1, beta-2 agonist makes sense why then dobutamine is contraindicated in patients with ventricular arrhythmia history. Dobutamine is quite safe, but I can see how it can precipitate arrhythmias. Let's move on to vasodilators. What do you guys got for me here?
3: Yeah, so the flavors of vasodilators are adenosine, diperitamol, and ragadenosine. If I was Andy from the office, I'd say (laughs) (laughs) ragadenosine. Love a good office (laughs) pool. Uh, each of the vasodilators activate the adenosine receptor, which increases cyclic AMP production, vascular smooth muscle relaxation, and at last, coronary vasodilatation.
2: What it does is it dilates the resistance vessels and dilates the arterioles, and so that lets you see because there's no more resistance in the coronary bed. If there is a if there's an epicardial obstruction that is significant enough to cause an asymmetric distribution of blood flow.
0: All right, so the idea here is that we're opening the floodgates to coronary flow. If there is nothing preventing blood flow, then the whole heart gets a little extra juice and everything lights up normally. If there is an impediment to that flow, like a coronary blockage, that area gets less juice than the rest of the heart. And if I've learned anything from being a father to a three-year-old is that less juice is always a bad thing.
1: Anyways, all right, what are what are some contraindications I should keep in mind with those vasodilators?
3: So first, uh, there's that increase in cyclic AMP, and that has an effect on the SA node, which may reduce chronotropy, uh, resulting in bradycardia and hypotension, which is why we should avoid vasodilators in patients with second or third degree heart block without a pacemaker to protect them. Uh, Second one to keep in mind is that adenosine receptor activation also induces histamine and acetylcholine release, which may lead to bronchoconstriction in patients with severe COPD or asthma. Right. And while the list of contraindications
0: may sound pretty scary, they're actually pretty rare. And we do have a reversal agent. That's aminophylline.
1: Right, right. And you also want to tell your patients two things before the stress test. One, in general, no beta blocker the morning of the stress test. And two, no caffeine before a vasodilator stress test because, fun fact, caffeine competitively can block adenosine receptors, which will make the vasodilator stressor less effective.
3: All right, so to sum this up, remember that if they
0: can exercise, patients should exercise.
3: In this group, think about anyone with a comorbidity that would make it unlikely they could achieve the target heart rate of 85% predicted for age. And if they can't or shouldn't, or straight up won't, then pharmacologically stress them. And if you're dropping a pharma stress bomb,
0: dobutamine and vasodilators are your main weapons. Doputamine is your main squeeze machine, and vasodilators open up the floodgates to expose the hidden impediments to your juice flow. Remember that both classes of drugs have their own sets of contraindications that you really should think about when stressing your patients. All right, so after choosing the stressor, then the next step is to choose how we want to measure the response to that stressor. So
3: super basic question here. What are my options here, guys? Yeah, well, thankfully you have a few. With all of them, the idea is that you get baseline diagnostic tests first, and then you repeat it after the stressor, looking for a change. Straight up EKG works for low intermediate risk patients, and there's also four others: echocardiogram, nuclear imaging, and even MRI and PET scans. If you want to get real saucy, <laughs> yeah, hashtag
0: saucy stress. <laughs> Come into a tutorial near you.
1: <laughs> All right, guys, rain this in a bit. Okay, starting with the ECG. Which patients might we target for this?
3: So the first thing to ask yourself is, is the baseline EKG interpretable or not? In other words, is there anything that might prevent ischemic changes from showing up after the stressor?
1: Right. So to help me keep straight the five things that are no bueno in a baseline ECG, it's actually tied up nicely in an acronym. wagon Drivers Don't Litter. V is for V-paced rhythm. W is for WPW. D is for depressions and digoxin. And L, of course, complete left bundle. Um, And as an aside, we have no idea if driving a Volkswagen has anything to do with littering, but maybe the mnemonic will stick a little bit more.
3: So if you can get away with it, in other words, if you don't have a V-paced rhythm, any baseline depressions, a left bundle on the EKG, a stress EKG is nice to have because they're cheap and they're radiation free. An important pearl to
0: remember is that ST elevations during a stress test will localize to coronary distributions, but ST
3: depressions do not. Righteous point, Freed, but stress EKGs are the least sensitive and specific of all diagnostic modalities, coming in at about a pulled sensitivity of 68% and a specificity of 77% for the detection of coronary disease. That sensitivity drops even more when it comes to women and in the elderly, so we usually reserve these for patients in whom our pretest probability is relatively low to begin with.
1: And if my stats are correct, that means you have to be okay with a decent amount of false positives and false negatives. So that's probably why these stress ECGs are rarely used in isolation today.
2: Everybody who gets a stress test gets EKG imaging. That's done automatically. And The people who need imaging beyond EKG imaging are people who you have anything other than a really low index of suspicion. And so if you are thinking, I'm pretty sure this person does not have coronary disease, uh, then... An exercise EKG stress test is is usually a good choice as the test that you're doing.
1: So it sounds like for Mr. Corey Neri, he's intermediate risk, right? He has risk factors, his story. I definitely want to add some imaging to that ECG. And for further imaging, I often find myself deciding between stress echoes and stress nuclear scans. So what are the pros and cons between the two?
3: Well, the good news is that for ECHO nuclear scans, they have similar sensitivity and specificity, roughly around 80%, which is better than exercise EKG alone.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful for me to understand. And we'll link in our show notes and in our infographic kind of the detailed numbers of sensitivities and specificities if you want to really delve into it.
0: Right on. So uh, switching to echoes, we're essentially looking at wall motion abnormalities. If a resting wall motion abnormality is present, then we interpret that as a scar, which is kind of old ischemia there's new wall motion abnormality with stress that's indicative of new ischemia. And other pluses with echo is that it gives you information on valvular pathologies, also pulmonary hypertension and left ventricular outflow tract obstruction.
3: Yeah, and the drawback with stress echoes is that the diagnostic performance of the test is heavily reliant on the skill level of the sonographer. So, you have to think about the fact that they have to obtain clear windows at rest and then again at maximum stress, which can be insanely difficult.
2: And the downside of doing a stress echo is If you don't have good windows, the validity of the test is really low. It's technically a little bit more difficult to image because you are getting somebody from a position on a treadmill and then immediately putting them onto uh, onto a table and then taking images. And so you might miss peak exercise in that patient because it takes so long to get the images and to get them in the right position.
1: Right. And got to keep in mind that some patients might just have bad windows, right? Like sometimes our COPD patients or patients with high BMIs, I hope my POCUS friends are happy that I remembered who gets bad windows
3: <laughs> usually. <laughs> so now, now that we have the pros and cons of stress echo down, let's move on to stress nuclear scans or the so-called stress mebi or nuclear SPECT, aka the single positron emission CT for people who didn't know what SPECT was. Guilty. <laughs> uh, so a, a technetium 99 labeled tracer, usually cestamoebe, is injected and healthy myocardial cells take up the tracer and dead or ischemic cells do not. Rest images are captured using SPECT, and the patient then undergoes the chosen stressor. Tracer is injected again, and stress images are captured. Again, we're looking at the difference in the before and after pictures, and also differences in the tracer distribution within the heart itself.
1: Nice. So the tracer is going to light up the living cells, and the non-viable cells are going to be dark. And this is particularly helpful in patients who have undergone revascularization in the past. And you're trying to figure out, is there healthy tissue for further intervention?
0: The downside here is that there is radiation involved. And let's also not forget that similar to echoes, there is definitely some user-dependent subjectivity as well.
2: When you put up nuclear images, it looks like you're looking at a donut across the room and trying to gauge the symmetric distribution of sprinkles. Uh, and then there's this huge arbitrary component to uh, how you're interpreting it. Interpreting it, I may be overstating it a little bit in terms of the arbitrariness, because it's standardized to to some extent, but it really is. There's a there's a large degree of subjectivity in interpreting. Similarly, there's a degree of subjectivity in interpreting wall motion on echo.
1: Yep. So no perfect test here. Another small but pearl worthy thing that's a possible downside to keep in mind with nuclear scans is something called balanced ischemia.
0: Right. So to understand balanced ischemia, we have to understand that ischemia on the nuclear spect relies on the reduced uptake of tracer in one particular segment relative to the other segments of the left ventricle. But if a person has severe proximal or three-vessel disease, the myocardium is globally ischemic, and there's no major difference in tracer distribution within the heart. So there's a higher chance that the scan will appear
3: normal when in reality there's actually severe ischemia present. But fear not, Greg has a really interesting contingency plan for cases of balanced ischemia
2: to get around the concept of balanced ischemia. A nuclear stress test will also report something called TID or transient ischemic dilation. And the idea is if you have TID that is present on nuclear imaging, the ventricle is enlarging and it has probably globally reduced function There, But if you see transient ischemic dilation on the nuclear imaging report, that is a very high risk feature that, alludes to the high, the decent probability of there being either left main or triple vessel disease.
0: How about that for a stress bomb? A TID higher than 1.3 is worrisome for global ischemia.
3: I'm about ready to call this section and move on. Almost Marty, but not quite. The stress EKG, stress echo, and stress nuclear scan are probably the most high yield for most internists, But for completeness sake, we should probably touch on pharmacologic PET and MRI scans. These are your Cadillacs of functional testing in both quality and cost. For example, it's been estimated that for a particular facility to even offer a pharmacologic PET, it may cost as much as $450,000 per year. Oof.
1: Yeesh, that is pricey. Uh, So, cardiac MRI, sometimes referred to as CMR, can essentially tell you basically anything you want to know about the heart. It's able to quantify both myocardial perfusion, flow reserve, and also has unique benefits to be able to identify myocardial fibrosis and assessment of the RV function. A negative stress MRI is associated with a 99.2% three-year event-free survival.
0: Nice. All right. Can I recap now?
1: Uh, Yes. Hold on one second. If we're going to do a good comparison, we got to talk about costs here. So we already talked about the Cadillacs of stress testing, but for the three most common stress tests, the stress ECG, obviously, is the cheapest, right? It's going to ring in around $175 or so. Stress echoes are a bit more expensive, around $500. And nuclear scans are twice as much, about $950. All
0: right, so start saving now for your Christmas spec scans. Okay, I am recapping now. So stress EKGs is probably best reserved for your patients in whom we have a low suspicion for coronary artery disease, right? These are uh, people who are able to exercise and who baseline EKG is interpretable. For most patients, the choice probably comes down to echo or nuclear imaging. In the hands of a skilled echo tech, the test characteristics are pretty close. Echo has the benefit of better valvular evaluation, while nuclear scans are the test of choice for patients with a history of revascularization.
4: Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code coream50 to get 50% off. That's a code, Coriam50, at factormeals.com slash Coriam50.
1: All right, back to our case, young Shrey Shrey. <laughs> she, for Mr. Corey, she, Mr. Neri, she, <laughs> she ended up getting a dobutamine stress echo, uh, thinking, okay, I, I heard a murmur, and I want to see if there's any influence of any valvular pathology. And yeah, I thought, I thought the pain was over with the choosing of the stress test. But then I get the the results back. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, how do I interpret these results? And how do I explain to the patient in a way that makes sense?
3: Yeah, I, I totally agree, Shreya. And it turns out that describing a stress test as positive or negative might be the easy thing to do, but it's probably not the most accurate.
1: Yeah, I mean, how many times have we seen the chart like, negative stress test in 2017 and no one bats an eye any further.
2: So when you're an internist who is sending somebody for a stress test, there are, there's a lot of information that you can get from the body of results of the text that doesn't get communicated if you just think of a stress test as positive or negative.
0: Oh boy, I'm going to have to go add into a progress note from
2: Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Again, if you look at, Exercise stress testing, you get prognostic information from how far does somebody go and what degree of ST depressions do they have during the test. And not to sort of over quantify things, but you can look at something like the Duke treadmill score which is the number of minutes that you walk on the stress test, essentially minus a factor of how many millimeters of ST depression do you have. And that gives you great prognostication for major adverse cardiovascular events for a patient moving forward over the course of a period of years. Similarly, if you get nuclear imaging on somebody, the amount of ischemia that somebody has gives prognostic information about their MACE risk over uh, over the future next couple of years.
1: Right. Check out the bottom of the infographic for using scores like the Duke Treadmill score to estimate risk.
0: Right. So someone who gets symptomatic or has EKG changes at three minutes is very different from someone whose EKG changes occur at minute nine.
1: Right. So that's what stress tests tell us. But just as important is what stress tests don't tell us, right? These stress tests are telling you about the physiological consequences of the blockages, but not always about the presence of blockages themselves.
2: Stress tests don't tell you anything about the presence of coronary disease that's not causing an epicardial coronary obstruction. You can have intermediate amounts of plaque and large, large quantities of plaque, but if they're not blocking 70% or so of the, of the artery, you're not going to pick them up on a stress test.
3: So stress tests are not binary. They don't say obstruction or no obstruction. Stress tell us if there's an amount of coronary obstruction that's significant enough to cause ischemia during the stress.
2: Instead of describing a stress test as positive or negative, I describe a stress test as low risk or high risk. I'm looking at how severe is this? Is it mild? Is it moderate? Or is it very severe? And I'm also looking at how many segments of the wall or how much of the myocardium is involved. And immediately, if somebody walks on the Bruce Protocol for 12 minutes, and they have nuclear images that are completely perfect, they still have a possibility of having an MI in the next 12 months. It's it's really
1: low. All right. Marty is opening up Epic as we speak and changing the quote-unquote negative stress test he wrote to low risk.
0: That (laughs) definitely just happened. All right. But seriously... What I found compelling from speaking with all these cardiologists was that we often get tricked by the positive stress test in a person found to have clean coronaries, or even worse, those tragic stories of major cardiac events shortly after the, quote,
2: negative tests. None of these tests are perfect, and you're always in the back of your mind wondering how reliable is this test, and to what extent do I believe the result?
3: And this really gets into that Bayesian pretest probability for significant coronary disease, something that is nearly impossible to capture in a clinical guideline. Greg thinks about this in terms of populations.
2: You will be fooled by pristine nuclear imaging. Similarly, you will be fooled by abnormal nuclear imaging in patients who have totally patent epicardial vessels. And whether that reflects microvascular disease, endothelial dysfunction, or some other issue that isn't cardiac at all, uh, it's impossible to tell, but you will be fooled in both directions. Across populations, and even though stress testing is really good at prognosticating across a population, if that person has an event, their probability of an event is 100%. And so all of a sudden, you're getting somebody who on a population level wasn't supposed to have something happen, but they do have something happen. And uh, so stress testing is not perfect. And I keep harping on that because it's super important. And like the whole goal of ordering these tests is to figure out how are you treating somebody and how are you empowering them and giving them the tools to change their lifestyle that will reduce their risk of cardiovascular events and cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. Wow, let's talk about that. I've really
0: never thought about using stress tests to empower patients to change their lifestyle in a meaningful way. I mean, in fact, I wonder if there's actually harms being done when we slap a negative label for example, if we give them that false sense of confidence by describing the tests as negative when they can still benefit from lifestyle changes that provide you know, arguably the greatest benefit,
1: mm-hmm. this, my
0: friends, might be the hashtag bomb to top all other hashtag bombs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it doesn't help your decision about whether to treat their hypertension or treat their diabetes or give them a statin because I don't think it gives you enough certainty about the presence or absence of the diagnosis to modify the way that you're treating those risk factors.
1: Exactly. And in terms of management, let's bust the myth that everyone with an abnormal stress goes to the cath lab. It's a case-by-case decision between the patient, the primary clinician, and the cardiologist.
0: That is something to think about as we wrap up this episode.
1: All right. So much food for thought indeed. So let's recap what we're hearing. We should avoid labeling these studies positive or negative in favor of more nuanced terms like high and low risk, which leave a lot more room for discussion about risk modification. These tests give us a lot of information that we can use to estimate risk, for example, in the Duke Treadmill score. And if we use these results to get buy-in from our patients, we can probably make a bigger difference than if we ignored the quote-unquote negative stress tests and sent all the positive stress tests to the cath.
3: And with that, we'd like to introduce our peer reviewer, Dr. Eugene Niroditsky, a cardiologist at NYU, to recap our stress test take-home points before we move on to the throwback pearl.
5: The first pearl is uh, to stress or not to stress. So, I think one important point here is to understand that stress tests are not just a way to look for coronary disease. They're a good way to assess for things like functional capacity, extent of valvular heart disease, pulmonary pressures, what happens to a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when they exercise. So, beyond just coronary disease, there are a lot of other indications. I think the functional capacity component is also very important. Patients oftentimes underplay their symptoms. For the purpose of coronary disease, I think we all need to go back to Bayesian analysis and understand that if you have someone who's really low pretest probability for having obstructive coronary disease, it's probably not the patient that needs a stress test. Those who very clearly have obstructive coronary disease, those having unstable angina, well, you know what's going on. It's probably not the stress, the test that you choose. Everyone in between where they have some sort of cardiopulmonary complaint, not very clear, could be angina those are the folks that really probably would benefit the most from stress testing. In addition to the diagnostic information, you get a lot of prognostic information from stress testing. How much activity could the patient do on the treadmill? How bad did their EKG look with activity? How much angina did they get? So, both diagnostic and prognostic data that you get from this. In terms of pearl number two is uh, how do we stress somebody? So, I think there's a simple way to think about this. If a patient can exercise always exercise them. That's where you get the information about what are they really doing, and that's really the physiologic way to stress somebody. If a patient can't exercise, you really have two options. You have inotropes, which is really dobutamine, or you have vasodilators, commonly a medication called regadenosone. Generally, dobutamine is paired with echocardiography as an imaging modality, and vasodilators are paired with nuclear imaging. You have to keep in mind a couple of points with these medications. For example, if you're giving somebody dobutamine, well, you can precipitate ventricular or supraventricular tachyarrhythmias. And you're giving people a whole lot of dobutamine when you do these tests. In ICU, we rarely go beyond 10 mics. During stress test protocols, we often go up to 40. That's a lot of dobutamine. Vasodilators, well, they can precipitate bronchospasm. So if you have a really bad asthmatic who's wheezing in front of you when they come for this stress test, that's not the person who gets a vasodilator. And also patients with significant bradycardia or advanced conduction disease, well, you can precipitate heart block. Also not the patient to be getting a vasodilator. Luckily, we can always reverse those individuals if you run into trouble. Now, how do we image these people? So Know that every single person who gets any kind of stress test always gets an EKG, but the EKG is not perfectly sensitive or specific for ischemia. So oftentimes when your pretest probability is reasonable, you really want to throw in some sort of imaging. So you can do either nuclear stress testing in that setting or you can do echocardiography. And which imaging modality you choose? Well, there's not really a hard and fast rule. A lot of it has to do with what your institution is capable of doing. Maybe they don't do echocardiography on the weekends, for example. Um, you know, you think about it, if the patient had a previous echocardiogram and their windows are terrible, well, that's not the patient who gets an exercise uh, stress test with echocardiography imaging. On the other hand, if someone is really, really obese, has a lot of kind of extra cardiac tissue, you might get a lot of artifactual information with a nuclear and That's kind of some of the ways you think between the two. Ultimately, you can always ask your cardiology consultant colleague which is the best one to choose. Some of the pros of the nuclear imaging is that you can get information about viability. So you can get a resting nuclear image and you can see that the patient has had a prior infarct. And when you stress them, you can see how much ischemia do you really get around that infarct, how much of that tissue is viable. One of the downsides is that unlike with echocardiography, you're giving patients radiation and the cost is higher. So that brings us to pearl number four is how do we communicate the results? Well. A lot of times I hear people talk about stress tests as being either positive or negative, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And you really want to think about how high risk is the study. And I like to think about studies as being low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk. And a lot of factors go into determining that with an imaging study, you can really look at the extent of wall motion abnormalities, how much ischemia do you have, How poor is the patient's exercise capacity? How nasty did the ST segments look during the EKG? And when you communicate the results to the patient, you don't want to just scare them and say there's something really abnormal about your heart. You want to sit them down, not not freak them out, and just discuss the fact that you have something that maybe suggests that you have a narrowing in one of the arteries of your heart. And then you can thereafter discuss what the options are. I think an important point here is to know that a positive stress test by no means equals a catheterization. The cornerstone of managing coronary disease is really medications. And then if the patient is really symptomatic through medical therapy or if they have really a lot of ischemia, that's really when you go to the next test and that's really the invasive one.
0: All right, so let's pump the brakes on the squeeze machine and revisit pearls from a prior episode on the unsung heroes of human physiology, the beans.
1: Yes, so several episodes ago, wait, Marty, did you just call the heart the squeeze machine?
3: Did you call the kidneys the beans? Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) Okay,
1: okay. All right, not 100% sure how I feel about that, but I'll allow it for now. So we covered contrast-induced nephropathy back in the day and felt like all this talk on coronary health was probably a good place to re- revisit one of the biggest perceived threats to the beans or the kidneys, intravascular contrast.
0: <laughs> all right, fine, true. But uh, Shreya, let, let's be honest. What's the real reason why we're doing this now?
1: Right. So one of the biggest takeaways from the podcast was the risk of contrast-seduced nephropathy being described more in the arterial contrast literature and not as much in the venous contrast literature. In fact, the risk is very low with intravenous contrast studies like CT abdomen with contrast. Our friend and colleague, Dr. Swapnil Hiramath...
0: At H. Swapnil on the tweet machine.
1: Yes. You know, pushed us to even question the data behind contrast-induced nephropathy in the arterial contrast literature as well.
3: So the problem with the contrast-induced nephropathy literature that deals with intraarterial arterial contrast is that they have so many confounders. We might see an increased risk of AKI after coronary catheterizations, but patients undergoing intraarterial angiography after a STEMI, for example, simply put, have more reasons that they could suffer from AKI than those undergoing a more routine CT chest with contrast.
1: The confounders include things like poor renal perfusion at baseline to propagation of arthroemboli to higher effective concentrations of contrast seen by the kidneys. The bottom line is that intraarterial studies likely carry a higher risk of post-contrast AKI but are really difficult to compare to studies of AKI post-intravenous contrast.
0: And the other big issue here is that the optimal strategy for
3: prevention of contrast-induced nephropathy hasn't yet been determined. Several methods of prevention have been studied, some more robustly than others, and these include hydration with isotonic saline, sodium bicarb, and N-acetylcysteine. And while prophylaxis with isotonic saline before, during,
0: and after arterial contrast studies has been the tried-and-true method of reducing post-contrast
3: AKI, we want to make sure to introduce a bit more skepticism with Swapna's help. So, a recent prospective study showed that saline prophylaxis was no better at preventing contrast induced AKI compared to no prophylaxis in patients with CKD undergoing elective contrast studies. This was the AMACIN study. That's AMACIN with a C and not a Z. All
1: right. And we are still far from case closed here. You know, while these studies certainly do throw some shade, at the routine usefulness of isotonic saline to prevent post-contrast AKI, it's certainly worth noting that procedures in the amazing study were elective. Okay, read no STEMIs here, so likely no hyperperfusion of the kidneys and likely okay volume status. So, might be representing a group here that's less vulnerable kidneys and not as sensitive to contrast.
0: All right, so we clearly have quite a bit to learn on this topic, but we do greatly appreciate Swapnil's comments and everyone else who drops us a line to help us refine our points and make for a better podcast for our audience. And with that, I think we're done, guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
1: See you in a couple Wednesdays from now when we talk about coronary CTAs, the the other half of the risk stratification testing. And a reminder, we are looking for more off-air producers, so if you are a curious soul, love researching compelling points, distilling them down in digestible chunks, pitch us an email, hello at com. Check us out on our brand new website, coreIMPodcast.com. Tweet us at Core Podcast. We're also on Facebook at CoreIm and Instagram at CoreImPodcast.
0: And if you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes. It really means a lot. We put a ton of effort into these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. You can also send us an email. Our address is hello at coreiampodcast.com. Let us know what we're doing right, and more importantly, how can we improve?
1: And always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. What do you got for me? What do you have for me here? What do you got for me here? Oh, <laughs>
0: like... <laughs> I don't think either one of those sound right for you. <laughs> what do you have? Like, like it's Pete like asking the heaven. Queen of England to say. <laughs> um.
4: And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward.